Welcome to The Optimistic Curmudgeon, where the best ideas win. I'm your host, Josh Herring. My guest today is Dr. Scott Yenner. Dr. Yenner is a political science professor at Boise State University and a Washington fellow at the Claremont Institute Center for the American Way of Life. He's also the author of The Recovery of Family Life, Exposing the Limits of Modern Ideologies. Dr. Yenner, welcome to The Optimistic Curmudgeon. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. I am uh, so excited that uh, you were able to join us today. Um, could you start us off with just telling us a little about yourself and kind of your journey, both uh, in terms of academics and uh, professional life? And how did you get to focusing really on questions of family policy? Well, I am a Midwestern boy who uh, landed a job out here in Boise in 2000. So I, uh, we pulled up stakes and my wife and I, and at that time, I think we had two kids. We moved out here and have had three since. I, you know, I'm a political philosophy guy. I got my PhD at Loyola in 2000. You know, and teaching uh, political philosophy, it's it's difficult sometimes to bring it uh, to life for students. And one of the concepts that uh, that is always being talked about in political philosophy is nature, the idea of nature. I saw that there was a tendency in all the philosophers when they talked about nature to categorize it or use things like sex differences or the fact that children come into the world helpless or that children come from sex as you know, stand-ins for nature. And so when I taught, especially modern political philosophy, whose idea is that, uh, that it's the job of human beings to conquer nature, that they were always talking and using the, the family uh, and the body as ways of illustrating what it meant to conquer nature. And so, you know, as I was teaching this, I, I observed it and I was using it all the time in class and I eventually developed a class uh, on the family and modern political thought really as a way of illustrating the idea of how to conquer nature and how it was conceived of. So I would start with John Locke and I would go through John Stuart Mill and Karl Marx and I would end with modern feminism in the form of the great uh, French thinker Simone de Beauvoir. And, um, and I was like, wow, this uh, as the same sex marriage debate was going on. I'm like, wow, that my class is actually really central to public policy these days. So at that point, I wrote my first book, which is right here, Family Politics, the idea of marriage and modern political thought it was based really on a class that was grew out of teaching. Hmm. And uh, and. And then one of the things you don't think about is that when you write a book on one thing, then you like be, people ask you to do things on it. It's like, oh, hey, you're good at this. Why don't you do this? And uh, so I ended up being kind of a family guy in modern in political philosophy. And uh, and, you know, I did some work at the Heritage Foundation and wrote a, a series of long papers for them on the family and in modern political thought and in the American regime. So I thought, hey, I'll just update. I want to bring everything forward from where the book, the first book ended. And uh, so I wrote a second book. That's the one that I think we're going to be talking about, The Recovery of Family Life. And, you know, that's about what's happened since uh, the beginning of the modern feminism move, uh, feminist movement, including important movements in sexual liberation and contemporary liberalism. But they're all just kind of an outgrowth of the modern project to conquer nature and to conceive of human beings as autonomous over nature. And, and, you know, we're living through the reality that is the family in some way is a leading edge of this very deep and well-established modern aspiration to conquer nature and to become, uh, you know, I think lords and masters of nature is Descartes' phrase when it comes to this. So, 
it's a it's a place this uh, teaching on the family it's a real practical place where this broad idea of modern political philosophy is working itself out in practice that is really interesting i'm, I'm hearing a lot of echoes of c.s lewis's abolition of man uh, in what you're describing i know i know you reference him uh, in that work in the recovery of family life was was that was the abolition of man kind of central to your your thought process or is that really adjacent to what you're doing well, uh, it wasn't central. Um, uh, I would say that, uh, you know, my training in political philosophy was very central. Uh, and one of the, one of the uh, I don't know, convicting things for me as I was studying political philosophy in a particular, you know, school of thought that were called the Straussians. And, uh, and the Straussians have this kind of implied critique of modernity, that modernity comes across in waves. It kind of has a conservative expression and it gets more radical and historical uh, as time goes on. And uh, that's led to a real crisis in modern philosophy where we can't really understand uh, the phenomenon of the world. And that was my training. And then one of the great uh, ironies is that, wow, the Christians really agree with this. And uh, between C.S. Lewis and John Paul II, who I focus mm. on a little bit more in my first book, um, they have this very similar critique of where the modern project, if you want to think of it as a project, is headed and uh, and how it got here and what the implications of it are. And so uh, C.S. Lewis is, I would say, some, like a gem that I uh, you know discovered only after I had deep training in, in philosophy. Well, that makes that, that that too makes sense. I think that's interesting that. Uh, that the different schools of thought are coming at the same kind of questions and looking at the same changes uh, and, and agreeing in, in a lot, maybe even more than they would disagree in, in some respects. Uh, I definitely uh, could see, I saw a, a deep love and appreciation for Aristotle in your, your analysis. Uh, I, I, it seems that you found him very helpful to kind of looking at uh, the way uh, we in the West have really uh, tried to balance uh, uh, human nature, but also social con constructs in the way we, we apply that nature. Uh, so is, am, am I right in thinking Aristotle was a key figure? Yeah, uh, very much so. I mean, in my education, Aristotle is a very key figure. Uh, the, the important concept I think that Aristotle taught me among other things is the idea of what he calls the regime. The regime is a, uh, a set of ideas uh, that govern a political community, that kind of determine its nature. And, uh, and those ideas concern the good, the advantageous, and the just. And, uh, you know, a political community has implicit and often explicit commitments on what is good, what is advantageous, and what is just. And it determines the laws. And then the laws are passed kind of to reflect that, that regime, those, uh, those reigning or governing ideas. And, you know, so in particular political communities, you have oligarchic families because those political communities are oligarchies. And uh, generally in an oligarchic family, you know, all of the property is passed down to an oldest son and it's passed down whole so that that uh, property doesn't circulate and begin to disperse. You can maintain the concentration of property. And uh, sometimes there'll even be marriage will be seen as an alliance between two oligarchic families where they can combine mm -hmm. even more their um, their you know economic and political power. And you know in in modern democracy, it's just the opposite. That is, we help 
land to circulate and wealth to circulate and marriage is temporary and marriage is based on the choice of the individuals and parents are considered shameful if they give only uh, their first kid all of the inheritance. And so, you know, so the, the big idea in this case, you know, is, is a democratic understanding of what's good and advantageous and just, which means a hyper uh, uh, emphasis on the idea of equality. And, uh, and that, of course, has profound effects on how we imagine family life. And, um, and I really understood Aristotle uh, to be in contradistinction to the, the general modern view that we have private life here and we have public life here, and the two don't meet. And Aristotle shows actually both the public and the private are shaped by our regime, uh, shaped by something above it. And uh, when you take that idea seriously, and, uh, and I try to take that idea seriously in everything I do, um, it's difficult to take liberalism on its own terms very seriously. I mean, Aristotle offers a different account of human life that shows that everything is to some extent public. And uh, no matter what is happening, the, the laws are, and the culture um, shape one another and they shape our ideas and how we live. And uh, so that was, you know, a very profound uh, thing that Aristotle taught me at the beginning of my career that I've really tried to keep going with. I think it's a helpful way to think about society as a whole, because maybe we're, we each might see different aspects of that. But I think it's really helpful in some what we'll get into in a moment about the way policies work if, to keep that concept of the regime in mind and the way that those policies are, are maybe uh, either influencing our understanding of that regime or encouraging one regime to the exclusion of another. Uh, before we get into the nuances of your book, I, I did want to ask you a question, uh, and, and please feel free to tell me you don't want to speak to this. Uh, we can always edit this out as if we need to. Uh, but I was really surprised as I, I read a couple chapters of your book before I looked at your institution. And I sort of figured you'd be at one of the uh, major conservative colleges, maybe Hillsdale or University of Dallas, something of that nature. Uh, and lo and behold, you're at a uh, big state school. And uh, I, I'm kind of, I, I was just very surprised. So could you speak just a moment to uh, uh, how you do the research that you do in that context? And, and what kind of, do you get a lot of pushback from, from kind of making uh, pretty traditionalist arguments in a, in a kind of a mainstream university context? First of all, you know, I've been, you know, tenured and promoted. I'm a full professor here at Boise State. I was tenured, I was promoted uh, to full professor really on the basis of my first book, the one I held up before, um, uh, the family politics book. And, um, and, you know, and that was in the, around 2010. And, uh, and, you know, and all of the, both those books that I held up before, both Recovery of Family Life and Family Politics have been published by university presses. Uh, the first book was well-reviewed, you know, it was uh, um, uh, respectable to talk about dissenting opinions in 2010. Certainly a kind of radicalism has overcome academia in the time since then, uh, and really accelerating since, you know, I would say 2014, 2013. And it has made it much more difficult to, uh, to um you know, I don't know that I would have gotten the same treatment of my book, uh, mm. uh, uh, The Recovery of Family Life, if I published it before tenure and promotion. And so I think those things are just, you know, well-established facts 
uh, about the university that there's uh, so the, the second book to, to maybe put a fine point on this hasn't been reviewed by the left. My Ooh. first book was reviewed by the left. And uh, now it's like um, it's like either uh, the book can be ignored because the left is ascendant so much on campuses or like we're not going to acknowledge the existence of it uh, because that's the best way of making sure the word doesn't get out. I don't know what's going on. But uh, the, the, the first book, as I say, was very well reviewed, widely reviewed, and the reviews were good. And so, yeah, there's been a, you know, a, I would say a profound change in the last decade um, in how the campuses treat uh, dissenting opinions. And, uh, you know, I mean, I definitely am a critic of feminism that, you know, doesn't win me friends. I'm all right with that. But, and, uh, and I'm not necessarily a... Uh, a you know, an endorser and affirmer of uh, the sexual liberation and all the iterations that it comes in. And uh, that also probably doesn't win me friends. Uh, and I'm okay with all of that. Like, I would like to be able to make arguments and follow the truth where I think it goes, but it, it is increasingly uncomfortable. So I, I keep hearing people uh, kind of making arguments, and this is more kind of the uh, entrepreneurial uh, folks who are trying to start new colleges one of the things that they'll frequently take target at is the tenure system and uh, and argue that that really and I think there's a there, there's some level of research to support that uh, there's a correlation between tenure and a decline in teaching quality. Um, but I think your story sounds like it is a uh, it, this is I, my understanding is this is the traditional justification for tenure. I mean, that it really is a protection of the ability to pursue truth, even if that truth becomes unpopular. Uh, is that is that fair? It's not unfair. How's that? Um, <laughs> the uh, the way I would you know the the effect of tenure for the most part I would say is to make people into company men. Hmm. So uh, you know I have to live with people over a long period of time, and uh, that means that you're gonna you're gonna make sure you don't do much to ruffle feathers. It doesn't really promote independence of thought or action. So. Um, uh, and in my particular case, I think, you know, I was, uh, you know, not interested in having, I was no longer interested really in that uh, justification for it. So, uh, and I was very, I'm very interested in, you know, as I say, trying to follow the truth where I think it goes. You know, there are other ways of going after academic freedom and Boise State has used those ways of going after academic freedom. So they can say, you know, we, we, we defend your right to do whatever you'd like or to say whatever you'd like in an academic context. But if you harass or discriminate, mm. we're going to go after you on Title IX charges. And that has happened to me. Um, so that when I made a particular speech uh, in last fall, uh, they, you know, Boise State came out and defended my right to say it after there was somewhat of an uproar. And uh, at the same time said that if you feel like you've been discriminated against or harassed against, please contact this number. Shazam, someone contacted it. <laughs> and, uh, and then, you know, a Title IX investigation happens. I lawyer up and, uh, you know, go yeah. through the process. Uh, luckily, in my particular case, I was still going under the process that had been established by the Trump administration, not the one that the Biden administration mm -hmm. is now planning, mm -hmm. which will be, you know, very difficult to to survive, I think, uh, increasingly difficult. Attacks on freedom are perfectly consistent with tenure. And uh, we've seen uh, this in the Joshua Katz incident at Princeton, where he was just fired for pretty trumped up charges uh, that don't seem to be 
very well established. You know, there are dozens of cases that are going on across the country. I should say at least a dozen cases uh, mm. that are going on around the country uh, where tenured professors of a conservative ilk or who said something that uh, contradicts certain narratives are, you know, facing the same situations. I am. Well, I don't want to spend our whole conversation kind of on the uh, the, the woes of, of the academy, but that's that, that's helpful to kind of hear from somebody uh, from 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 uh, the inside in that sense. I want to shift to uh, discussing your book. Um, uh, I want to read a quick passage from the uh, the preface where uh, you state a healthy respect for sex difference can hardly be mentioned in polite company among the nation's elite. The more surrounding. Uh, the mores surrounding sound marital practices have been upset in a concerted effort to promote greater individualism and liberty, among other things. In fact, the sexual revolution appears to be the culmination of the democratic revolution that filled Tocqueville with dread. Could you expand on kind of what you see having gone wrong in terms of the family, the relations between the sexes, um, these, these fundamental institutions that you're addressing in, in that passage. Yeah, well, that, that passage is from the uh, early part, uh, from the intro, maybe the couple first couple paragraphs mm -hmm. of The Recovery of Family Life, where I'm trying to unite the two books that I wrote and to ah. show how they kind of constitute a whole. And uh, so this could be a long answer, but I'm going to give you a thumbnail sketch of the no, land. Of that's the fine. Um, so the, the two governing principles, as I see it, of modern political philosophy are, uh, A, uh, to understand marriage as a contract, and B, to conquer nature. And what I do in the first book is try to show how, uh, how over the course of time, modern philosophers reimagine and radicalize each of those principles, so that in the beginning, uh, John Locke announces a new teaching on the family. The marriage is no longer a covenant, but it's a contract. But it's a contract that the state determines the terms of. Hmm. So the state can determine whether or not divorce is permissible. And it can determine you know, how, how uh, heritable land is given to children. It can determine what the goal of marriage is. In, this, in Locke's case, it's the procreation and education of children. And over the course of modernity, the contract goes from being determined by the public institutions to being negotiated privately by the parties, so-called. And uh, this, you know, reaches a culmination, uh, this idea reaches a culmination in John Stuart Mill. And uh, John Stuart Mill says, you know, there's no real reason for the state to recognize uh, marriage as any kind of special partnership or contract. And, uh, and it should just be privately negotiated by the parties. And, uh, and, and then, you know, the modern feminism said, actually, before you can even have a nice negotiation of the contracts, we have to make sure that the people, the man and the woman are on an equal playing field. So we need to kind of rearrange the cultural institutions. So as to favor, we'll call it female equality in a way that hadn't been favored before. Only if men and women are at the beginning point equal, can they ever be said to consent to the marriage. So, you know, so in the beginning, Marriage was a contract, but it's rejected by modern thinkers, and they see it, excuse me, in the beginning, marriage is a covenant, but modern philosophers uh, reject the idea of marriage as a covenant, embrace the idea of the contract, and then they develop the idea of a contract to the point where now the state is refashioning the cultural institutions in order to make that contract genuinely equal among supposedly private parties. That's the trajectory. Um, and, you know, 
on the second principle of uh, modernity, where we're conquering nature, um, you know, it, it, you know, Locke began with the simple idea that the authority of a father seems to be a natural thing, and it bleeds into politics. So that before Locke writes, it's very uh, common to have what we would call patriarchal politics. Fathers rule families, and fathers rule peoples or kingdoms. And, uh, and he tried to just show, look, I mean, the, the natural institution in the family doesn't necessarily lead to patriarchal politics. So that he was trying to conquer nature to show that it had a limited application uh, in the political realm. <laughs> but over the course of time, the idea becomes more and more radical. And uh, so Simone de Beauvoir, once again, writing in the 1950s, is a kind of culmination of that in the first book, where she says the body really should have no effect on the kind of life you live, you know, even whether or not women have children or the things that are physically attached to what we think of as sex. She says we can imagine those differently in any kind of social environment. So the situation makes the biology. The biology, she says, doesn't make the situation. And uh, that's a very radical idea. And, uh, and but, you know, it's being developed. Uh, it's kind of, you know, it's like a uh, uh, under the speed limit. Uh, these ideas are under the speed limit when Locke writes. They're at the speed limit when Mill writes. And they're over the speed limit when Beauvoir writes. And now we are hitting the, ga uh, hitting the gas as hard as we can. And uh, so it appears that these things uh, that we're dealing with in family life, transgenderism, sexual liberation movement, drag queen story hours, all this, is, this stuff seems to be, um, you know, the inevitable byproduct of this long 400 year revolution. Uh, and you could call it the democratic revolution. And that's what Tocqueville calls it, which is why I bring Tocqueville mm. in at the beginning of that second book. So, um, yeah, I mean, it, th these are not blips. The sexual revolution and feminism are not blips. They're deeply sewn into, you know, what I think of as the modern project. And you can call that the abolition of man. You can call it an emphasis on scientism. You can call it the three waves of modernity. But whatever it is, it's a radical uh, culmination uh, that we're at, at this point, uh, 400 years into the effort. So if I'm understanding this correctly, uh, it seems kind of behind everything you just said are sort of a set of uh, uh, maybe assertions or assumptions about what the family actually needs in order to flourish. That there are certain that that husbands and wives need to relate to each other in some sort of stable way, some sort of socially rec societally recognized, commonly understood way that at different times has been codified in different laws but that what modernity has then been doing is consistently bringing forth different ideas from different thinkers that sort of culminate. Um, if I remember correctly, your metaphor was the, uh, the rolling revolution, sort of almost like these waves that keep on. We think we've got one wave and we understand it. And suddenly there's like three more coming in. The tide just keeps coming and it keeps rising. I, I thought that was a very effective metaphor, uh, but that each, as each of these waves come forward, we're losing those we're losing those core pieces that uh, are really essential to uh, uh, human happiness, human flourishing, stability of life. 
and that instead of the stable, we're constantly chasing this this chaotic, amorphous uh, interchangeability. Is that is that right? Yeah. I mean, the rolling revolution is our regime, and our regime is is uh, increasingly democratic. Uh, there's a, it seems at least there's an emphasis on equality, um, but it's also about conquering nature and uh, about increasingly trying to establish the conditions for equality so that genuine contracts can be negotiated. So um, so another way of looking at this whole thing is, uh, and this is what I try to do in the introduction to recovery, is to say, uh, you know, actually these two strands of modernity, the idea of contract and the idea of conquering nature meet in a modern concept. And we call that modern concept autonomy which means that man gives himself a law, right? It's a, a law that we give for ourselves. And, uh, and so we need to make all of the things that are important to us if we're going to be fully autonomous beings. So we cannot accept the things that nature or culture or tradition have handed us. We need to make our lives and uh, live the way we're going to. So the institution of marriage has long connected certain human experiences. It has connected sex to procreation. It has connected sex and procreation to marriage. It has connected marriage to parenthood, right? And what the modern movement to autonomy does is that it separates all of these experiences so that individuals can kind of survey the menu of life and figure out what sex is going to be for them, what procreation is going to be for them, what marriage is going to be for them, and what, if anything, parenthood is going to be for them. And uh, But they're not connected, they're separate. So examples of separation are things like cohabitation. What is cohabitation? Well, it's uh, actually uh, having, let, let's say, single parenthood. Single parenthood is procreation without a connection to marriage. What is contraception and abortion? At least in part, it's separating sex from procreation. What is, you know, the movement toward national daycare? It's separating marriage from parenthood or other uh, things like this so that uh, so that people can kind of and then, you know, we, we could get further into this and say, well, what, what why should sex even be related to procreation? Maybe sex is actually best never related to it. So you can have the kind of sex you want to have without worrying about procreation. So not only is contraception connect, disconnecting sex from procreation, but a widely public available, uh, a public endorsement of same-sex attraction and same-sex um, ideas would also separate sex from procreation. Hmm. So, um, you know, and then why do we have to do this earlier and earlier? Well, because the marriage culture that connected all these things is so strong that we have to educate children to disconnect these things at an earlier and earlier time. So the radical, the radicalism that we experience now is a result of this autonomy. And this autonomy is uh, the idea that we don't connect the things that seem to be connected in our biology and in our inheritance. And, uh, and the second book, Recovery, is really about the working out of that idea uh, in various spheres of our life. And I say that really what, what this has meant is the abolition of marriage. Uh, the abolition of marriage would mean not only does the public not recognize marriage, but it's also it's dethroned in our hearts and minds. 
so that people don't prioritize it, they don't get married, uh, they don't think about it as a priority in their life. And, uh, and, and, you know, my thesis is that the more you emphasize autonomy, the more you're really pointing toward a post-marital world. I, there, there's so much there. As, as I was prepping for, for this episode, it kind of hit, I, I initially wanted to go pull a bunch of quotes from your book, but I decided not to go that route because there is so much in the book. And just in case we have any listeners or uh, later listeners or viewers who uh, just need the encouragement, you should definitely go order a copy and uh, make sure you've got a pen, pen handy to, <laughs> to highlight. Uh, but one thing I thought was just so interesting that you're, you're making me think of as you're describing that, Dr. Yenner, uh, is that it seems that this narrative of autonomy is so different from our lived experience, at least as young human beings. I mean, the, so I, I work with, I'm, a, I'm currently a vice principal. Uh, I spent the last 10 years working in the middle school, high school, classical education space. And it seems to me that the, the typical human experience is one of complete contingency. Uh, we are helpless when we're born. And we spend those first 16 to 18 years uh, just getting to the point where we can actually provide some love self-sufficiency. But we rely on parents for food, for clothing, for shelter. We rely on teachers for basic knowledge, for introduction into this wider world. But it seems that so much of that experience is recognizing that most of the world is given to us and we receive it. And that we are relying upon that. But the narrative you're describing is really, uh, it's, it's a, in, in one sense, I think it's very enticing. It's, it's the same story. Uh, I've, I've got the, the line, Milton's line about uh, where Satan says it's better to, better to reign in hell than to serve in heaven. Better to be autonomous on my own than to be submitted to something from someone else and someone else's will. Um, but how could you help connect the dots between, uh, maybe we can draw a couple strands together, uh, between some of the insights the radical feminism develops that you trace in recovery, and then also the the where where does the sexual revolution come through as really a a way of transmitting this the importance of autonomy to people inside the modern day? So let's start with some definitions. Uh, I mean, what is feminism? Well, feminism is the the desire to separate our bodies from our identity so that our bodies will have no long-term or in enduring effects on who we become as people. And uh, so much, according to feminists, so much of our world uh, suggests that the body should have a long-term effect on our, um, our identity so that, you know, we have different sexual plumbing and uh and when babies come into the world women seem to feel a little bit more like it's their job they're certainly more equipped uh to care for those children and uh they seem to have psychological differences uh, from men uh where, which lead them to a bit more into the caring professions than to other things they're often more articulate than men and uh more uh, you know able to master a wide range of kinds of jobs so they choose different kinds of jobs uh, at, uh, at a rate that men don't. Men tend to flock to certain kinds of jobs. And uh, so all of this, you know, seems to be natural, but it's not natural. See, that's the, the idea of feminism is all of that is socially constructed. And if people are going to be genuinely autonomous, that is to make their own decisions, we have to lessen the impact of culture, the patriarchal culture, on the way human beings choose. 
And uh, we, can, we can do some of that through technology like contraception and abortion. We can do a lot of that through laws, changing the nature of education, anti-discrimination laws, uh, a push for equity. Uh, we can do this in, uh, you know, we can do this in preferential hiring treatment and, uh, and you know, but who knows where it's going to, who, who knows all the things that are involved in promoting this. Um, we want to encourage women to be more active in sex, uh, not to be passive partners, but uh, that's part of patriarchy, to be a passive partner, to be an active partner is what feminists uh, recommend. So it's important then, therefore, and I'm coming to my like a broader definition of feminism or maybe more specific, uh, a planks of feminism, which is to end patriarchal socialization, to promote economic and emotional independence of women from the family, and to end sexual taboos. And uh, the sexual taboos all are kind of point in the direction of a relationship between marriage, monogamous marriage, and sex. You know, so feminism is, you know, about creating the conditions so women can genuinely choose. Sometimes that means just building a new culture that supports the idea of women's choice. At other times, it means minimizing the effects of the body on their destiny. And, uh, and, and that is what autonomy ends up being. Um, it, uh, so are we good on that? Like, all right, so, so uh, sexual liberation, uh, uh, the way I would define sexual liberation is uh, a, uh, a disconnecting of sex from any responsibility. Uh, a responsibility foisted on sex is what, you know, many of the sexual liberationists would call repression. So if you believe that sex should only be expressed in marriage, you will be repressing your sexual desire and only expressing it uh, in the context of marriage. And uh, that leads to all kinds of social problems uh, because according to these liberationists, sex is kind of understood as a hydraulic system where you repress and you press down and you press down and you press down and suddenly it just must explode. And uh, this leads to all kinds of uh, social problems. Some people will murder, some people will invade Poland, other people will you know, become capitalists, but all of it are expressions of repressed sexuality. But if we can just always allow our sexual desires to be expressed, well, there will be peaceful, there'll be no problems, uh, uh, there'll be no uh, mismatch between the supply of sex and the demand for it. And, uh, and you know, and, and sexual, sexual life will be, you know, just genuinely more tame and, and people will be able to control how they express it. Um, so it's about liberating sex from expectations and responsibilities foisted upon it by, uh, by either society or our own conscience. Each of those movements is an attempt to make human choice independent of anything that might have determined it, which is a way of thinking about what autonomy is. Now, like, I want to like be a bottom line thinker here. And like, I think that's a lie. It's totally inconsistent with Aristotle's view. There is no liberation. What the rolling revolution and both feminism and sexual liberation do is they put forward a new sexual ethic a new sexual regime with its own expectations for how people should behave, with its own idea of what is just, with its own idea of what is advantageous, with its own idea of what is good and beautiful. 
Therefore, it is always really shaping our lives. It's never really liberating us from anything because there is no liberation. Uh, we are political, social beings who take uh, a goodly part of our identity, if we want to use that term, from the constitution or regime under which we live. And the sexual revolution or the sexual constitution that we've been describing is just another imagined response to the natural things uh, that always exist. As you were describing that, I was thinking of a, a book I recently read, uh, Christine Imbo's uh, Rethinking Sex, A Provocation, where uh, she interacts with a lot of the same ideas that you're describing. And uh, I mean, she really is, she doesn't quite uh, want to go back to an older sexual ethic with, with clearly defined mores, but she goes into a lot of detail about the fact that this, the idea of disconnecting sex from responsibility is, is sort of impossible in the sense that there's the uh, the hookup culture seems to present a view that such that you could have sex without even caring about the emotional connection or emotional ramifications of, of being with another person. And that's just not the case. And she, she cites lots of different examples of people who have really, they messed themselves up because they actually got emotionally attached uh, to somebody. And, um, like that's really interesting to think about that in terms of there's not actual liberation, but instead a different regime being kind of proclaimed or uh, being presented. Um, now, I guess one other follow-up question that I want to kind of pivot uh, towards some of the uh, areas you turn to towards towards solutions. Um, but where I'm, I'm trying to get a sense of where exactly does all of I mean, there, there's I'm trying to figure out where where people encounter these ideas. I mean, I think it's primarily, I know it's all over the place in pop culture and media. It's its prevalent on a lot of college campuses. Is this just sort of in the air that we breathe? Or do you see particular sources of the uh, movement towards autonomy and the idea of uh, participating in the, the rolling revolution that that's passed on from at this point from one generation to the next for multiple generations? Where 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 are those sources of ideas, do you think? Well, if I understand that right, I mean, uh, it's in law and culture, right? Um, so uh, so let's take a particular example and let's trace it back uh, for a second. And we could use divorce. We could use pornography to illustrate this. Uh, you know, let's use pornography first and then uh, we can use divorce second. I mean, so pornography seems to be ubiquitous. Um, it's a, it's easy, easily available, uh, as everyone knows, on the Internet. And, um, and it's become like a, a, just a normal part of many lives of young men. Women have their own different form of pornography, but it's usually in the written word. And uh, but so pornography is ubiquitous. It's part of the air we breathe. And it does have some effect on how everyone approaches sex. It shapes our expectations. It's the images that we see. And, uh, and you know, it's uh, the cultural effects of what we see affect what is normal and what is abnormal. And, uh, and that like is just a fact. However, like the pornography revolution is abetted by laws. Uh, in, in America a hundred years ago, let's say, um, there were pretty strict regulations on obscenity. And, uh, and all of that stuff was loosened up first in 1957 in a Supreme Court case called Roth versus United States. And then really kind of abandoned, for the most part, everything except hardcore pornography was regulated in a case from 1972, 73, 
called Miller versus California, if memory is serving me right. Sorry, it might not be serving me right, but I know it's Miller. And um, and I know the case was from California, so do the math, right? And um, and in that case, you know, the, the, the standards for what was permissible, as I say, were really loosened up. And so there's been a legal framework that says, you know, the consumption of pornography is not that big a deal. And, uh, and that's been around for 50 years. And uh, so maybe let's say two generations. Internet pornography has been around one generation. Uh, and I think we'll spawn other kinds of, uh, and I was already spawning other kinds of things. In the book, I talk about sex robots, uh, uh, perhaps a little bit too long of a discussion of sex robots in the book. <laughs> Uh, but nevertheless, it's like cool. one of the next roles in this part of the rolling revolution, I think. And uh, so, you know, and, and but what's the ultimate effect of that? It's the ultimate effect is to detach sex from responsibility. And uh, so it's part of furthering the sexual liberation, which is why who favored uh, the deregulation of pornography in the 50s and the 70s? Pornographers and sexual liberationists who wanted to detach sex from responsibility. And so, you know, the, the legal structure is essential to the cultural structure of pornography. And much of the same is true of uh, divorce regulations, which also really culminated in the early 70s when uh, California became the first state to pass no-fault divorce. Uh, I like to call no-fault divorce, no-fault at-will divorce. Uh, so one party can get out of a marriage for any reason at any, uh, at any time. And so it's at-will. And, uh, and, you know, so that has a profound effect on marriage too, uh, because now uh, a totally blameless spouse, uh, you know, could be left holding the empty bag uh, if the other spouse wants to leave. And, uh, and like that's, so people are defensive. Uh, the, and, and, you know, studies show uh, that the investment that people have in their marriages in the uh, in the era after no-fault divorce is less than it was before it. And of course, that just stands to reason. Marriage is going to be less important if it's less stable and dependable. And uh, as you have generation after generation uh, living under an unstable marital regime, it's not a surprise that marriage is less stable. Uh, and it's especially less stable in, uh, you know, it's the, the lower 50% of America's income bracket where uh, marriage, you know, is probably declined by half and continues to decline uh, when it comes to marriage rates. It's not as big of a problem in, we'll call it like the upper middle class, uh, where people see it, at, you know, or see it as in their interest to stay married. And, uh, and marriage is a way of kind of maintaining your class advantage against the rest of society. So, uh, so I think, you know, there are, you know, there's always a legal spine on which our muscles, our cultural muscles rest. And, uh, and, and it's tough to see the law because all we see are the implications of the law. But you have to imagine that there's an old sexual regime, an old sexual constitution that dealt with human passions and family life in different ways and hence shaped a culture that was different. That's why it's a revolution. It's a change, it's a turning. And, uh, and so all the things that used to be bad are now good. And many of the things that used to be good are now bad. And that's what like a revolution does. Now, are we at the end of the revolution? We're not at the end of the revolution. It's rolling. 
And, uh, you know, how much farther down the mountain is it going to roll? I mean, stay tuned. Uh, that, that, that's it. Um, well, I think that that's really helpful to think about that relationship between legal structure and then cultural phenomenon. I think that I, I know I tend to think more about the cultural phenomenon and not enough about the legal structures that enable those. Um, as you were describing that, it, it just I, I think that's a that it's reminded me of some discussion I've heard of some of the uh, national conservatism guys who are uh, looking at ways to kind of take back the policy developing power um, that has been owned by thinkers on the left for for a long time and sort of their their approach i heard this uh, at least first from jd vance at the nisi conference uh, back last july uh, he argued that basically the, the the right needs to use the power of the state for good and that at least rubbed my sometime libertarian leaning thoughts the wrong way as like wait wait a minute we, we shouldn't be trying to use the power of the state and and just do what the left has done but do it from a right rightist point of view but what you're if what you're describing is correct then that that really is the only way to then affect cultural change or at least a major way to affect cultural change yeah, i mean there's like a range of laws that any particular culture can accept at a particular time and uh i think that reimposing indissoluble marriage on merit uh, on america at this point would probably lead to fewer marriages uh, because people would be like i'm not going to get into that kind of thing <laughs> and uh so you know there's a limit to what law can do i mean law enables culture but culture limits law both those things are true it's leveraging cultural change with whatever institutions you have available to you uh, that might enable a legal revolution and sometimes the institutions that are available to you are legal but you know often you, you have to have some cultural change in order to get to the point where you can actually exercise such things you know i i believe and i think it's true that uh that say the recent uh dobbs decision is within you know like the cultural expectations of Americans. Um, but I don't know that we can immediately um, make contraception illegal. Mm. And, uh, and, you know, I think that is maybe outside of what Americans could expect. And, and I'm not advocating for that as a policy goal. Um, but I'm just trying to say, like, you can't impose a law that is so outside of the uh, the expectations of people that it's tyrannical. And uh, so it's a slow process of cultural uh, combined with legal change. Uh, well, Dr. Yenner, as uh, your book kind of draws towards the last section, uh, you start kind of uh, turning towards solutions. Um, you used a phrase I found really interesting uh, and you capitalized it in several places, old wisdom. Uh, could you help us know what you mean by that phrase? And how do these older truths help us really make sense of uh, our, our modern world? Well, all I meant by old wisdom is nature. Um, so like men and women are different. That's old wisdom. Uh, <laughs> children need parents. That's old wisdom. I mean, we try to run away from it a little bit. Uh, and uh, obviously feminism runs away from the first truth and feminism abets other things and running away from the second truth. What I mean by old wisdom, and I always capitalize it, is, uh, is, is, is not like the way we used to do things, but rather what the truths about the human condition are. 
Mm. And uh, and I am thinking kind of C.S. Lewis-y um, in that like a Narnia book where they talk about the truths are sown deeply into uh, into the universe, uh, you know, so that human beings are imperfect. We're sinful. We uh, lack uh, we lack perfect wisdom. Uh, that's old wisdom, too. And uh, that men have vices that need to be controlled by society. That's old wisdom that women have vices that need to be controlled by society. That's old wisdom. And, uh, and that the institutions that we build like are gonna shape men and women toward their vices or away from their vices. Like that's old wisdom. Now, what institutions are gonna be necessary in order to accomplish uh, or em embody this old wisdom? That's gonna always change with the times. And uh, it's, it's going to be very difficult to take this dead old constitution that we had, which is why the constitution is not capitalized, but old wisdom is capitalized. And, um, and so I'm so happy, like someone noticed this stuff. That's great. And, uh, and <laughs> uh, I don't know if you figured out how many country music songs I allude to in the book, but the number is very high. I, and, uh, <laughs> well, I will tell you, I, I'm glad to hear that you managed to work those in because I, I, I took great joy into working references to uh, usually DC or Marvel comic books into my tests and quizzes over the years. And, <laughs> and I always got a kick out of it when kids would be like, what do you mean? Bat of course, I wasn't going to pick Batman as the answer for who who uh, uh, who won the battle of, or who, who conquered England in 1066. But it was always fun to have have those kind of references worked yeah. in. So, yeah, so it's going to be impossible. I think you can't really advocate for the uh, the reestablishment of, let's say, the, the 1830s Constitution um, mm. in America, certainly not in any kind of short term project. So uh, so, you know, we need to take old wisdom and apply it to our situation. Uh, one of the ways in which I imagine that is like feminism has has had an effect on the world. It's changed the world. It can't be uninvented just like many of its institutions like contraception can't be uninvented. So now these things exist. Well, what are we gonna do with their existence? And, uh, and, and like refrigerators exist and, uh, and stoves exist and washing machines exist. So the job of running a household is kind of less consuming than it would have been in the 1830s. Like these are facts about the world. And so, uh, so it's, it's silly and impossible to demand that uh, women be simply you know, like returning to home, a new idea of what a mm -hmm. uh, of what a woman's role in the world needs to be discovered, and it needs to be consistent with the educated woman. And uh, one of the ways in which I imagine that new uh, feminine hero is the woman of part-time work. Um, mm -hmm. That is, that there can be public policies uh, that uh, abet part-time work, remote work. Um, certainly the market affords many of these opportunities, but you know where motherhood is nevertheless honored and thought to be a chief part of the calling of a woman, just as fatherhood would be a chief part of the calling of a man. And, uh, and so, you know, I think there are, and that, that would mean that, you know, it's, it's all right not to be in a C-suite. You don't need to lean in. And uh, or leaning in is part time work and building a community with a man and uh, being happy in a marriage. Hmm. And uh, and so I think that's one of the options. Certainly, it's not going to be for every woman. Um, 
but you know, some women might want to dedicate themselves full time to it and uh, raising their kids full time, homeschooling them, perhaps overseeing um, overseeing all the various ways in which the culture intrudes into the household. Other women might want to forego the whole thing altogether. I don't know that there needs to be any kind of a prohibition on that, but uh, but you know, attaching honor. Uh, to family life is, you know, one of the uh, one of the ways of reimagining what a new constitution that manifests the old wisdom uh, would be like. So it seems that uh, really your your contention is that uh, we should be aware of the way nature really is and how that affects us as human beings and the world that we operate in. And that in as much as we do have the ability to create those legal structures and those cultural phenomenons, we should do those in concert with nature rather than in opposition to nature. And that when we do that, it creates conditions of uh, some sort of variable flourishing. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think that's good. Um, the The only part of it that I would I, I would maybe put differently is the third part of what you said. Uh, I mean, nature is going to exist, and uh, and no matter what happens, a constitution is going to like work within it. I call that the grooves. Sex provides the grooves, and the constitution kind of provides the variability. And uh, but the grooves always exist. That's the thing that the feminists and the sexual liberationists deny. There are grooves. Sex has grooves, and uh, men and women are different. And uh, which means that they are happy about different things. They need different things. Uh, these ideologies prevent us from actually noticing that stuff. And uh, so it's crucial that we, uh, you know, notice it. Uh, but it, that doesn't mean that every constitution will lead to happiness in the same way. And, uh, and so, you know, I think judgments need to be made about uh, uh, maybe at the individual level and certainly at the cultural and slash legal level over what the general tendencies of the sexes are so that we don't damage the tendency and consider them vices and, uh, and that we actually help each sex in their different ways, become uh, their best selves. And uh, so that would be, you know, I don't know, it's kind of a revision, but. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a, uh, that's a, that's a fabulous uh, probably place to draw this to a close. I think that that's a very helpful summation. Uh, Dr. Yenner, where can people find and follow your work online? I have a Twitter account. Uh, I think it's Scott Yenner, uh, at Scott Yenner. Uh, I have a YouTube station where I post stuff on uh, on books that I read. Uh, generally, it's readings of books, Dostoevsky's Demons, uh, Welbeck's uh, uh, Atomized is on there. And, uh, you know, I'll be putting up Brothers Karamazov, other uh, Crime and Punishment is uh, almost done. And uh, so if the people who like great books uh, can get an access to that, and that's my YouTube station is Scott Yenner, I think. And uh, those would be two of the big places where you can get it. I always post my articles, occasional articles on my Twitter account. So uh, that's one of the things that I do on it. And uh, so those would be some of the places they can get stuff. Of course, my books uh, contain uh, most of my thinking. So Excellent. And uh, at least the, uh, the one we've been mostly talking about today, The Recovery of Family Life, is available from Baylor University Press, published in 2020. 
I think, not 2021, 2020. Uh, well, Dr. Yetter, thank you so much for joining us today here on The Optimistic Curmudgeon. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Uh, thank you, listeners, for joining us today for this episode of The Optimistic Curmudgeon. My guest this episode has been Dr. Scott Yenner, Professor of Political Science at Boise State University. And we get that second title in here. Uh, the Washington Fellow at the Claremont Institute Center for the American Way of Life. Uh, the book is The Recovery of Family Life. We've been talking about it this episode, and I hope that uh, you managed to find a copy and enjoy. If you like this episode, please do leave us a five-star review and share it with your friends. Until next time, seek the good, discover the true, and love the beautiful. You've been listening to another episode of The Optimistic Curmudgeon, where the best ideas win. I'm your host, Josh Herring. The Optimistic Curmudgeon is a project of Thales Press. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a five-star review and share it with your friends. You can find us on three major social media platforms. Search for The Optimistic Curmudgeon on Facebook and LinkedIn, and find us on Twitter at the handle at TheOptimisticC3. This episode was edited and produced by Madison Kay, audio engineer for The Optimistic Curmudgeon. Until next time, seek the good, pursue the true, and love the beautiful.